Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creative. Then the next craft, block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. <laughs> Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. <laughs> Thank so. you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. <laughs> yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and welcome to this episode of The Stages Podcast. Dale Burridge is one of Australia's most successful concert and corporate entertainers, having starred in numerous musicals, concerts, and corporate events all over the world. He first tread the boards professionally back in the 1980s as Rolf in Britain's renowned West End production of The Sound of Music. His career has encompassed an impressive list of musical theatre credits, working alongside luminary talents of the stage. His stellar performances include Anything Goes, Scrooge the Musical, Les Miserables, Seven Little Australians and the role of Raoul in the original Australian production of The Phantom of the Opera. Having spent the last 20 years focusing his energies on expanding his hugely successful bespoke entertainment production company, Dale felt the seductive pull to return to the intimate cabaret form, firstly in a show titled Back on the Boards. He is now delighted to be returning to Sydney with his new show At the Crossroads, an exploration of the many twists and turns of a life in the theatre, appearing at the Hayes Theatre in April. It was my pleasure to sit down and conduct this conversation with the supremely talented Dale Burridge. Here I stand at the crossroads of life, childhood behind me, the future to come and alone. Nothing planned at the crossroads of life, but life will find me more grateful than some it has known. I see grateful to be what life expects me to be. So I stand at the crossroads of life, this way or that way, which way should I go? Toward the left or the right, toward the day or the light, toward the dark or the Nice to uh, see you after so long. It's been a while, hasn't it? I reckon it's been about 20 years. Where have you been? Good question. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people would probably ask that. Because, Um, like Roxy, you were the name on everybody's lips. Oh, was I? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know which way to take that. It's all all good after a phenomenal uh, resume of of performances in in musicals about 20 years ago. And then you you seem to just exit the stage. I did. Well, seemingly I did, didn't I? Mm. 
Um, well, for me, the last show that I did, last musical that I did was the international touring production of Les Miserables, in which I played Angerard. And just before that, I'd been up in Sydney, um, where I'd taken over my role as Raoul in Phantom. And that led into, they uh, at that time, uh, at the end of the Sydney season, they offered me um, either Raoul on the tour or Angerard. And Is that I, the second production of Les Mis to yes. occur? Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I'd uh, originally did the Melbourne season of Les Mis, which led into me getting Phantom. Um, so I fell in love with Les Mis, and it's still my favourite show that I've done yeah. um, for many different reasons. But, uh, you know, it's a great ensemble piece, and you get to develop all these wonderful characters and the score and the story and everything about it. Um, so when I was given the opportunity, because uh, at that time in Melbourne, um, Anthony Waller was on Girard, and I covered him and Peter Cousins uh, as Marius as well. So when I was given the opportunity to play on Girard, I jumped at it. Uh, and that took me to um, all over Southeast Asia and South Africa. So South Africa was where I finished my performing career. And I came home, I was about 38, 39, I think, by then. Um, so I was changing, you know, from the romantic leads to sort of no man's land, mm. <laughs> really. Mm. Too young to play the older roles and too old to play the younger roles. It's a strange sort of time. And I still had a bit of a baby face, not that you know now because I've got a beard all over it, but um, it was a strange time. And, I, and I'd been, a lot of my careers have been overseas, you know. Yeah. So I had, to be deeply personal about it, finished, ended a relationship when I came home back to Australia from South Africa and I found myself in this strange sort of limbo I'd auditioned for a couple of shows didn't didn't get them didn't get the roles and I'd been thinking for a while anyway uh, that I just I didn't want to tour again and I was just I'd fallen out of love a little bit I think with the industry uh, it could be a tough uh... Oh, every precarious industry, can't it? Oh, it's certainly, kind of, and everyone's you know. You're not guaranteed of your next gig. No, and that, that's the thing with mm. um, theatre in particular, or anything in in the performing arts, is that you're only as good as your last gig, right? Yeah. And you've got to start all over again. So anyone else in any other profession can climb up that corporate ladder, and they go in at a certain certain level. But really. As just about any performer will tell you, apart from a minuscule percentage, that you've got to start again every time, and you've got to walk in. And well, that can—that's a good process too, but it be, can become, you know, really hard, particularly as you get older and you've got a mortgage to pay, yeah. and the insecurity of that all the time. Where you—I say this in my show. Um, that you know you can be flying high one minute and then you can be just crash and burn the next mm. and those times are really hard to navigate you know and luckily i've had 
incredible people around me and my are very close to my family all my life and a lot of my friends aren't in it in the industry you know so and I come from small business as well so I remember at that time my dad said to me what are you going to do now you know and I hadn't really been out of work for many years so I decided that I was not going to audition anymore I just wanted to have a break so I stopped auditioning, which was a really hard thing to do, and I got my first nine-to-five job as a manager of an antiques emporium, which was hysterical because I knew nothing about antiques. But it was a job. And then I started working at that time a lot in corporate. Uh, you know, when I say corporate, you know, for lots of big events that have entertainment, right? And I'd done a few gigs like that. Um, you know, Builders, one of the stars from Phantom and... And they pay very well. Mm-hmm. And then a mate of mine, Mark Bradley and Daryl Lovegrove, set up this um, corporate act called The Three Waiters. And I'm sure many of your performer listeners out there would be familiar with and probably have worked in over the years. And that's probably still today one of the most successful corporate acts in the world. And I was one of the original Three Waiters in Australia. And we were just gigging like seven, eight gigs a week. It was incredible. It just took off and a lot of fun. Um, but I got to understand that part of the industry and really educate myself in how this corporate thing works. You know, there's this other side of performing out there. And, you know, many of us artists have supplement our income by doing corporate gigs. Mm-hmm. And so I did all of that. And then at the same time, um, actually, when I came back from South Africa, I took over from David Hobson, who was meant to do a big concert with the Sydney Symphony, um, uh, and he had to drop out, um, and it was in the Hunter Valley, and uh, Tommy Tico was the conductor, and they were looking for a replacement, and I auditioned for that and got the gig, which was extraordinary, a 90-piece orchestra, and David Halfgott was the um, star on the bill and I did all the sort of the phantom stuff and the music theatre stuff and you sung with the symphony orchestra before no that was the first time and I remember Tommy just um, saying to me the great Tommy Tico you know how are you how are you Dale (laughs) (laughs) because after the first rehearsal I, I honestly felt when the strings hit I felt like I was flying I felt like I was flying on top of the sound. Mm-hmm. And I'd never felt that before, that 90-piece orchestra behind me in the string section. It was just extraordinary. And then lovely Tommy, uh, who taught me so much, um, then took me under his wing. And I then sang many concert programs with him all over Australia, with the Tasmanian Symphony, with the Canberra Symphony... Um, I remember one of the symphony concerts I did, it was a night in Tuscany, and it was a crossover program of classical and uh, repertoire like Mario Lanza. And I said to him, Tommy, I don't know, I'm not an opera singer. And he said, Dale, you can do it! (laughs) (laughs) And I had to sing Veste de la Juba um, from Pagliacci. Uh, which is a famous tenor aria. And I remember uh, my first rehearsal with the Canberra Symphony, I was just shaking. And 
I don't know if it was a great operatic performance. I sang it in my way, but um, I still sang it. And then I did a 10-minute Mario Lanza medley. Uh, my love. Yes, all of that stuff, um, which was amazing. So, you know, that was an incredible time. It taught me a lot. So here I was in this new career, really. Mm-hmm. And I was earning a good living. And that led into me thinking about starting my own business. And so I created a show called The Rat Pack's Back based, of course, on Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin. And not an original concept by any stretch of the imagination, but I thought this would be a good vehicle in the corporate um, sector. It took off. And I invited uh, into that idea the late, great, amazing Michael Falzon, um, Simon Price, who's the Red Wiggle, uh, wasn't then, of course, and uh, David Malik. And so we were these leading men, really, that set up this business um, and it took off. And that that was the foundation for our company, SMA Productions. Uh, Then over the years, Michael left, then Simon, then it was David and I. And then uh, more recently, uh, nearly two years ago, just on when COVID first hit, Uh, We put the company into hibernation, of course, because uh, we built the company up to have nearly, um, you know, 90 to 100 artists working for us casually. We had five shows that we'd created that worked all around the world. We'd had an office in London. Um, So we we built this little company up to a a really great going concern. Uh, and I'd morphed myself into a businessman, I suppose. I ran the company um, operationally and financially, and, and David uh, ran the company fantastically in a more creative sense. So I stopped performing. Um, well, did you have the occasional um, corporate gig? Yeah, but if, uh, look, I'd still do occasionally this uh, show that we called Opera by Disguise. I'd do that occasionally. But I, you know, I was running the business yeah, too. Other focuses. Yeah. yeah, and interestingly, most of the performers that worked for us, were mainly young, had no idea that I'd had a career in music theatre. Right. Um, Did you? Were you still going to see theatre and shows at that time? Or well, that, we were living out in the country too. Right. So you know, my lovely husband and I um, had a house in Tarmore, um, a sort of a rural area. Um, near Picton and sort of the foothills of the Southern Highlands, I call it. Mm. Um, A lovely little township. uh, And we'd bought a ramshackle house on this beautiful property uh, 14, 16 years ago now. And over 14 years, we renovated it. So not only did I exit the business as a performer, I was running a company... um, and I was living out in a regional area. So I'd sort of separated myself totally from the industry, mm. really. Mm. Um, I didn't attend much theatre. Occasionally I would because uh, of the, you know, just coming into town. So then if we jump forward to um, just before COVID, we decided to sell our property because we wanted to have a change and we 
have an apartment in town that we'd had for many years. We used to rent out. And we were to shift in there. And then COVID hit. Uh, We still had the house on the market. And I'd been harbouring a very um, deeply personal uh, thought for many years, quite a few years, of wanting to perform again. But I told myself that was over. You know, that's done. I'm too old, I'm too this. You can always think of an excuse. Did you continue to sing in the shower or other house? Oh, yeah, yeah. always. And we'd, right. I'd done private gigs on friends' properties. We used yeah. to do opera, on, opera in the paddock and stuff, but not in the public eye. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, bits and pieces and for charities and things like that. Um, so when COVID hit and... We lost all of our business with in the space of two weeks, like just about every other production company, entertainment production company. Um, and we're all in this crazy, you know, spiral and massive fallout from what was happening. And everyone was terrified of, you know, what was going to happen and let alone this virus. And my beautiful husband, Johan, and I... Um, well, he came out and found me on the front porch and I was really not in a good way. And he just said, what's going on? And I just said, you know what? I just can't do this anymore. Even when this is all over, mm. I can't, I don't want to go back to doing this anymore. I'm done. And he just said, leave. I went, really? And he went, yeah, leave. So that was it. i started that process of leaving my company that I had been very proud of and such an important part of my life for going on 20 years. Uh, Of course, we lost the beautiful Michael Falzon. He succumbed to a terrible cancer and that was just desperately sad. And that really made me think about life and to make the most of it, you know, and Mm -hmm. not be complacent. And I've been given this gift. And so without really any plan at all, I left the business. That took a while. We shifted into... We finally sold our house. We shifted into our small apartment in town. And we just completely flipped our lives. At that time, too, my dad died. I shifted down and lived in Melbourne in in the last months of his life to be with him. And just had this really cathartic experience, you know, as he passed away with me holding his hand. And I felt, again, how precious Mm. life is. Mm. And that it's just up to us to make the most of whatever we've got. And so it's been an incredible time. For me, COVID has been coming back to my truth and but all those other events as well yeah. it's the universe speaking to you um, ah incredible right they yeah. all sort of aligned yeah. and it helps that i'm married to a counselor too so <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's coming very handy i've got to say but um and then we were back in town in our apartment we just shifted back in and out of the blue bev kennedy rang me lovely bev miss bev and said dale um I don't know if you know, but I I organised these cabarets at Claire's Kitchen and uh, 
I wonder if you would be interested in doing one. And my husband, Yom, was sort of listening. And he just yelled out, do it! And I had said no to a lot of stuff over the years, you know, because I didn't perceive myself in that way anymore. Um, but here's an opportunity that's come looking for you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Another message. From yeah, but universe. it's, you know, yeah. sometimes it's hard to convince yourself to come out of your comfort zone. Yeah. And you can't say no to Bev, though. No, you can't say no to Bev. Everyone <laughs> knows that. So I obviously said yes, and that led into a cabaret that I sort of put together, and that sold out really quickly. And I was like, wow. And that led into another one, and then another one. And I just felt exhilarated. And I thought, well, I don't think I'm done. I don't think I'm done. I thought I was, but I don't. Th- think I am I think I've still got more to say Mm. and at that time too I went back to some classical classes vocally to see where my voice was really at because you know your voice is like any other muscle when if you don't use it and look after it but I'm very glad to say and very lucky that my voice I, I think I'm singing better than I've ever sung in my life which I have no rhyme or reason why. Did you return to an old singing teacher or did you have to find somebody? No, lovely Glenn Winslade is my vocal coach. Um, And I'd never really learnt classically either. I I mean, in fact, I would classify myself as a a natural singer. I was born singing, you know. I really was. From the age of four is my earliest memory of singing. And really, even when I got Phantom in 1990, I hadn't really taken many singing lessons I'd had a few here and there, but I just always sang. Did you do the the, the Stedford? Uh, no. System? Were you in choirs? No, I was a school choir. Yeah. yeah. I well, you'll see in my show at the crossroads, I have a, a piece dedicated to that, and I really did have to fight to sing in my school. I, I went to a, a very rough school, um, and that's a whole other story. But I do cover, you know, bullying. Um, in my show it's a deeply personal story um, about that and my perseverance and that I really was once I found that I had this gift no one was going to take it away no. and that's sort of it's inlaid in me it's it's part of my DNA and so when I when I discovered it again in such a thrilling way by doing these shows at Claire's and and lovely Mark, um, who is one of the owners of Claire's, um, you know, Aka Claire de Lune, uh, kept live performance going all the way through COVID. Mm. It was just extraordinary. Mm. Um, so I found this passion again and it really ignited it in such a way. It really shocked me, in fact, that I just had this feeling again that I hadn't felt for so many years of the feeling when I sing that that's my deeply personal way of communication. You know, that's my... the way that I used to communicate for so many years. Uh, and music, you know, is such a, has such a profound effect on people. Um, you, you're not... You're only there with the keyboard. You're not there with the symphony orchestra no. or, or any other cast members. No. You're up there. You're quite exposed. Mm. But I love that. Vulnerable about but taking on that? That's Look, what you love? 
Yes, yeah. I think now, for me, th- that's crucial. That's an incru- That's a crucial and very important part of why I'm doing what I'm doing now. Is I, I've come back to my truth, the core of my truth. And so to perform in such an exposed way where it's just piano and, and with my show at the Crossroads, we've got double bass as well, um, that it gives me this uh, incredible direct connection to the audience uh, and communication. And I love that feeling of um, being exposed in that way and that there's a real fragility about it and also danger about that sort of performance, you know, in cabaret and 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 the way that uh, I'm taking songs out of context as far as out of the the musicals that they're in and changing them um, into my journey and personal story and, and uh, you know, weaving all of that in with underscoring and great script um, into telling this story of how I got to here. So a lot of songs from the shows in, yeah. in at the Crossroads. Um, I noticed a couple of them, Dr. Doolittle and, and Scrooge, yeah. which yes. you did on stage, mm. written by Leslie Brickus. Yes. A great songwriter. Well, I met him. Uh, During in, Scrooge? Yes. Yeah. So he came out for Scrooge. I was young Scrooge opposite the incredible Keith Michelle, who was just phenomenal and a dream to work with. And I, before I did Scrooge, I'd taken about six months off the industry. Um, so that was after the Melbourne season of Phantom. And I had another crossroad in my life at that point. And without going into too much detail, I finished the Melbourne season of Phantom and then left the industry again um, for the first time at that point. And... Um, and I tell that part of my story. I mean, At the Crossroads is a very up-close and personal look, and, and I go there. Yeah. Uh, it's full of humour, though, so it's not come along and slash your wrist. Yeah. If anyone that knows me, <laughs> you've got to have a good bloody laugh, right? Yeah. But So everything's imbued with a great sense of humour, and Martin Cruz has written this incredible script for me. But, yeah, with, young, with Scrooge, I return to the stage with um, with young Scrooge and I think I'd taken about might have been about eight months off the industry completely and um, I met Leslie Brickus at that time he came out and I'd been a massive fan of Anthony Newley in fact I learnt to sing by two records and that was the greatest hits of Anthony Newley and the greatest hits of Shirley Bassey and so as a, imagine me as a seven-year-old boy. It's a very interesting hybrid. Yes. <laughs> My mum used to just say, oh, it's just theatrical. <laughs> but, but I knew all of the songs mm. and I'd belt them out whenever I could. And that's probably the, one of the reasons why I've got such a big voice. Um, so really my singing coach was Shirley Bassey and Anthony Newman. And both of them did a lot of um, Brickus yes. material. Yes, he wrote all those big standards, mm. right. So I've had this incredible love affair with his music um, for many, many years. And in fact, I'd sung many of his songs for auditions, you know, because they've got a great range mm. and a great theatricality about them. But, uh, yeah, he, uh, 
came to Melbourne and, and obviously saw the show and I had a great discussion with him and told him of my love of his music and, uh, and he was very complimentary, uh, I remember. So yeah, I, his, his music in particular has been really a very special part of, of my journey and I put a lot of that into the show. In fact, I open at the Crossroads with a song from Scrooge and, and that song is called I'll Begin Again which of course um, old Scrooge sings in the show and it's his pivotal moment in the show where he realises that he's going to begin again even though he's been an absolute old yeah, song of redemption and yes. I'm back and... and to see Keith Michelle perform that every night was quite an extraordinary experience mm. he was in his 70s at that point nice man oh divine mm. true gentleman absolutely yeah. divine human being he was and uh, I was very privileged and honoured to work with him yeah. because he was here for La Caja Fall as well and yeah uh, yeah Australian audiences were very fortunate to see him a couple of times yes exactly yeah, yeah. so and, and that then led uh, I, I went back into Phantom after that and I, I say reclaimed my role in Phantom um because that had been an interesting journey in my life but I'm very thankful for it of course an incredible gift that I was given that was um, well, the third of those big Cameron Macintosh shows I suppose to come to Australia after Cats and Lamiers and yeah and uh, then The Phantom yeah Phantom was really uh, it opened at the Princess Theatre in 1990 and David Mariner had just renovated completely the Princess Theatre um, for the Phantom and when Phantom first hit Australia it was the biggest thing ever to hit Australia in music theatre it was just massive it was a huge machine and it completely changed my life close your eyes and surrender to your darkest dreams purge all thoughts of the life you knew before let your soul take you where you long to be and again another show after Les Mis that's full of singer actors yes the um, as auditions were happening for for, for Hampton Mm. what was it like at the theatre of Les Mis, because I, I imagine everyone's preparing auditions. You know, it's an extraordinary and time. And guessing who was going to get the roles yeah. of The Phantom and, and uh, Christine and Raoul. Well, it was amazing. And I do do this dedicated piece in At the Crossroads, which I call The Phantom Mashup, which uh, you'll have to see to believe. <laughs> <laughs> see, I can tell these stories now. Yeah. I'm allowed to. Yeah. Um, but it was extraordinary, you know. So to give you an idea of what was happening at that very time, I was in Les Mis, we're at the Princess Theatre, hugely successful. That was the original Melbourne season. You know, we had Sylvie Palladino as Eponine, we had Deborah Byrne as Fontaine, Anthony Warlow was en Girard. The gorgeous, gorgeous Rob Guest was, had taken over as Valjean. Um, Marina Pryor, of course, was Cosette. I mean, the list goes on. And this incredible ensemble, and I was Kufarak. And uh, I'd gone on a lot for Angerat. 
And I suppose I'd been noticed in that time. I didn't know then. But I was asked to audition for RAL. And I can honestly say, hand on heart, I thought it was for the understudy. Because mm. in, back then, everyone thought that Anthony Warlow was going to be RAL, up for RAL, and that people like John Dietrich and that older performers, older performers yeah. were going to be up for the Phantom because, of course, Michael Crawford had played the Phantom. So that's what everyone was thinking. And everyone also thinks, and Marina won't mind me saying this, that and Marina was just a shoe-in for that role. Well, she had to audition like everyone else and it wasn't a shoe-in for her at all, you know. Anyone that knows if you've been in a Cameron Mackintosh show in these big productions, you've got to audition for them. You know, and you've got to go there. Most of the time, you know, it's very rare that someone will just be offered a part. Um, you know, so here we all are. There was Marina playing Cosette. I was Kufarak understudying Anthony Warlow, who was Angera. And we auditioned, and uh, our final audition was on the stage at the Princess Theatre, so where we were doing Les Mis every night. And I walked out onto stage and Marina was there and I didn't, I'd been in Anything Goes with her, but she was a leading lady and I wasn't a leading man at that point. I was understudying all the leads. And we walked out and we did All I Ask of You and then we did the dressing room scene. This is your first audition? The, the, the the, I'd had yeah. these are the re, this is the final recall right. and we I knew that Cameron McIntosh Hal Prince John Robertson and all those people were in out the front watching mm. we knew they were there and I did the dressing room scene and then I could see Hal Prince glasses on his head yeah. I could see them reflecting and he went I want you to stick around <laughs> And I Music to the ears. Yeah. And Cameron came up on stage and put his arms around Marina and I and and just was very complimentary. Didn't offer us the role at that point. And then soon afterwards, I can't look at I can't remember if it was that night, I don't think it was. Maybe it was the next night. Um, we're doing the show, Les Mis, and everyone knew that Cameron was in the building and he was giving offering the roles so the first person that was offered the role was Anthony and it was the Phantom and you could hear the buzz in the theatre and everyone's going crazy you know it was just crazy and then we heard Marina had got Christine and everyone just the, the you know it's all going around the theatre who's got what and and then I'm sitting up in the chorus dressing rooms and I'm putting all my dirt on for the opening of Les Mis, you know, as a convict. And I do tell this story in Crossroads because, you know, you just people wouldn't believe it. And I'm coming down the stairwell at the Princess Theatre and there's Cameron McIntosh, John Robertson and Hal Prince on the staircase coming up. And I just tried to pretend they weren't there and go passing. Cameron grabbed me and said, congratulations, Dale, I'm very proud of you. You've got the part. And I paused and then said, excuse me, I've got a show to do, and ran. 
course you do yeah and you're working for him yeah and i put my dirt on my face and i remember sully born grabbed me and shook me and said dale you've got it and marina and i were just talking about this because marina's up here in sydney doing nine to five and you know we've where she's one of my most beloved friends an incredible woman on and off stage um we were talking about that moment and that night and how the th- three of us had the three leads and we were all doing Phantom. We were all doing Les Mis that night. So we still had to do the show, of course. And I, I just have a memory of flying. I just, I couldn't believe it. I was in complete shock because I, I thought I was up for the understudy. Yeah, yeah. And the next morning, my life changed. I was picked up in a limousine to go to a press conference. And at the press conference at the Princess Theatre, there was Hal Prince, Cameron McIntosh, Anthony Wallow, Marina Pryor, and me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, this young lad that had, had no formal training, really, and grew up in a beautiful working-class family. And my, parent, my dad was a builder, my brother's a builder's. And I remember my mother heard it when it was announced on the radio that I, uh, I think they said an unknown gets the role of Raoul. And it just completely changed my life. And they're the moments now, reflecting back on those things with hindsight, you know, they're the moments that are extraordinary in in lots of artists' careers where you work so hard and and I've been in lots of shows before that. I'd lived in London. I'd done The Sound of Music in London. I'd been, you know, around. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's those moments, those rarefied moments that you go back to and you think, wow, this is a part of your dream happening. I'd like to have been in the audience that night that you were told, you know, mm. Prisoner 5678. Yes. A grin from ear to yes. ear. <laughs> why, why, why is that prisoner smiling? Exactly. <laughs> I was very naughty in that show anyway. <laughs> Had lots of funny little characters in that show that I developed. Um, along the way. Along the way. But yeah, that was a, really an extraordinary time. I'm so thankful and grateful to um, Cameron McIntosh and, of course, Hal Prince the late, great, amazing Hal Prince. And just to say that, you know, that I've worked and been directed by one of the greatest living directors in music theatre is quite an incredible thing. And he was divine to work with. Again, just a beautiful, humble, fascinating man. Um, And I think it took me, when he did finally come back and take over the final parts of rehearsals, I remember just standing there sometimes thinking... Is this really happening? <laughs> Just and Gillian Lind, you know, who yeah. who was the, of course, the choreographer, and just honestly, the one of the most divine human beings I've ever encountered. Wicked and wonderful, and you know, I, she. We just had a real connection, and she'd say to me in rehearsals uh, very early on. She said, "There's two Rail plots. There's the non-dancer rail and there's the dancer rail plot. And even though I've spent my whole career as a non-dancer, for some reason people always think in casting that I'm, I'm a 
I've had dancing experience mm. because I think of my stature and the way I carry myself. So, you know, I played Rolf in The Sound of Music. I had to dance in that. Um, but really, I, I'm not a dancer, but she was adamant that I was going to do the dancing role, and so I did. And she would have me in rehearsals just going, again, again, again. <laughs> And I'd go home and have a radox bath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What a lovely serendipity that, you know, 20 plus years later, as you are returning to auditioning, mm. um, back into those, um, those audition rooms, yes. facing the panel, that uh, Phantom of the Opera should yes. rear itself again. Yes. Well, that's been an extraordinary thing. So, yeah, coming back into the business, I suppose, um, you know... A lot of people probably thought I was dead. You know, mm. whatever happened to? Um, because I did seemingly leave the industry, um, you know, and just go out there into the abyss. Uh, but yes, coming back into the industry and, and doing some cabarets and I've written this show um, and I have auditioned again. Uh, so really my first audition in 25 years was Phantom and I went along and glad to say got right down to the to the finals for the tour and even though I didn't get it uh, it was an extraordinary experience and one that I didn't expect at all to be back in the room and the the same room that you rehearsed the original yes well that was for the for the harbour production Uh, that was extraordinary and I walked into that room and I had tingles and they asked me you know, well, you know, tell me, Dale. Um, the director said to me, Dale, it's great to have you here. And, you know, how are you? And I said, well, I've got tingles. This is extraordinary because I'm standing in the very room that my phantom journey started at the Opera Centre in Surrey Hills. And so it was really a phenomenal thing. And I've got to say... Coming back into the industry, I I loved just being back in there and being part of that process yeah, yeah. again and falling back in love with it, I think. And, you know, like any performer, any actor, an artist will tell you when they go through an audition process, you know, you can be overcome with nerves and you can... Oh, there's all the what-ifs. and But really, it's out of your hand completely... All you can do is your best. I prepared very well mm. and I felt joyous being there. And, you know, it, my beautiful best, one of my best mates and also my writer and my uh, director of At the Crossroads, Martin Cruz, got the role that I was auditioning for too and I was just overjoyed for him and he'll be absolutely brilliant. Mm. So, yes, that's uh, <laughs> there's not really joyful things about getting older but that that is one of the great things the wisdom that comes with age and, uh-huh. and the humility that um, absolutely yeah. and i think that's that's a great thing right yeah I, I love that i love the knowledge i've gathered i love the much more in-depth understanding about how i work as a person and you know really for me when I walk in, when I walked into that room again, it's it's a. I say this in my show. It's about coming back to my truth, and what inspired me as that very young boy, mm. you know, 
that had no idea of what was out there in the world or how good I had to be or anything like that. I did it. I sang and I performed because it was my instinct. It was in me and it was about joy. And it was about when I did those things, how it changed people. And I began to notice that I, I had this power, you know, when I sang and it changed people. Mm. It changed. You know, and that that relationship and the way that communication, and so now coming back into that all these years later, it's just an absolute joy, and I and I feel I'm much more aware of it. Is like the sun I might have known if God had granted me a son. The summer's done one by one. How soon they fly! there's an urgency for me now I, I need to do this now it's I, I when I stand on stage and I I put on this it's sort of like this cloak it's not a real cloak but it's it's an, this imaginary cloak of of life experience before I set foot on stage and at the crossroads and I feel it and I can feel all its pockets and all of these incredible crossroads and and places I've been, decisions I've made to get me to this point in my life. And now I'm telling these stories through song and through lots of shows that I've been in, but quite a few obscure things that I haven't that um, just help convey the story. And I've got Bev on grand piano and Mark Zito on double bass and Martin Cruz and I wrote this show over the second lot of lockdowns in COVID I told him in all my stories of my life many of 
which he knew. And he went away for about eight weeks and said, Dale, just let me, leave me, do this. And he went away and wrote this incredible sort of framework Mm -hmm. for this show. And then Bev came on board and we started looking at the music and it doesn't really stop stop it's all underscored um by the great uh, lindsay partridge as well as bev so it, it really is uh this incredible gift i've been given i think of not just sitting up there singing sort of party pieces and things it, it's a show it's a deeply personal um theatre piece really I, I say it's it's raw it's real it's more than a cabaret not that there's anything wrong with cabaret but there's a real arc to this show it's a one man show yeah and it's yeah. it's a I've been now perform. I, I launched it in Melbourne originally at the fantastic Chapel of Chapel um, and I've done it in a couple of beautiful theatres um, in regional New South Wales and uh, coming up, of course, at the Hayes. But lots of people that have seen the show, one of the main comments I get is that um, people come up to me and say, we want our children to see this show. We want our teenage children to see this show because it has such a, an important message of survival mm-hmm. and coming back to your truth and and sticking to um, you know your passion, uh, coming back to your passion too. Um, so... Yeah, we have lots of little... Um, I won't give away too much, but we have this through line in the show, that this musical motif that keeps coming back in. And you don't really know why it's there until the end because it's a real pivotal moment in my life when I was a 14-year-old boy. Something happened. I get emotional talking mm. about it. Mm. And um, it changed my life. Yeah. And... I've never told that story and it's become the real crux of this journey because I've realised in later life what an incredible young boy how courageous yeah. you know and that's what drove me all of these years I sort of got lost somewhere there not in a bad way I made a great life for myself but um, to come back into my truth and my passion now at 60 is incredible. And to still have the voice to be able to do it, fantastic. Because I tell you what, it's epic. <laughs> it's just, you know, everyone, anyone that knows me knows that I love a big note. So there's a lot of big notes in this show, but there's a, a lot of um, very beautiful, subtle and refined um, repertoire as well. But, um, yeah, I, I get to sort of do everything. I use every part of my voice in this show. Is there any um, Seven Little Australians? Didn't put that in. <laughs> that is the first time <laughs> I laid eyes on you. Is it really? Yeah. As, As Dr. Alan Courtney. Dr. Alan Courtney. Yes. And when I think of that show, I think of the, the tree falling on the girl. Oh, my God. And, that cardboard tree. And the song Parramatta River. Was yeah. it Parramatta River? Yeah, Parramatta that, River. That was yeah. your big number. Yeah. Yes, it was a big yeah. number. And I had a duet with Michelle Pettigrove called Fall in Like With You, which... Mm sort of if you've never heard of it there's probably a good reason but uh, look I'm very thankful John O'May gorgeous John O'May was the director of that and Elise Platt Um, he started as well didn't he yes he did it was a bit like an Australian sound of music it was yes 
and it was a great it was a great show to be in a, a really young cast an amazing cast we were all very naughty um, yeah it was an ex- extraordinary time and that led me into because uh, I'd been in London um, well to be totally honest I've been working at David Jones for about a year and a half because I'd before that I'd been living in London and and I was touring in The Sound of Music and, and this is in the show as well and then I overstayed my working visa and I had to come home or I'd be deported. Mm. And I came home and I couldn't get a, into a musical, so I got a job in the rug department at David Jones in Melbourne. <laughs> and then what got me back into the theatre in... See, that's why it's called At the Crossroads, yeah, Peter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of them. <laughs> um, and then I auditioned for Seven Little Australians... And that got me back into theatre here. And then out of that, I got into Anything Goes, starring the great Geraldine Turner. And uh, On board the SS American. Yes. And that was a fantastic production. Great production. John Cross production. Incredible production. Mike Walsh. Oh, Mike Walsh, of course. Yes, sorry. Um, And Geraldine, of course, was extraordinary as Reno Sweeney. and that, yeah, that I suppose it's just about, you know, when you do shows and stuff, it hasn't changed. You, you do things and people notice you, you know, and they go, oh, where's he, where's he been? Where's he What's been? he doing? And I'd auditioned for Les Mis probably about three times before that. And finally, I got Les Mis after Sound of Music, out of, after, um, sorry, um, Anything Goes. And Gail Edwards cast me in... Uh, in Les Mis. Funnily enough, I auditioned for the original Barbican production of Les Mis because I was living in London. Oh, wow. Knew nothing about it. Everyone knew that there was this musical coming and no one could pronounce the name. And, you know, Victor Hugo. And uh, I remember looking at the book and thinking, oh, I'm not going to read that. Too thick. No, too thick. Yeah. <laughs> and I went along to the audition and uh, I got myself an audition and I went along and... You, and I hadn't done any research at all. Idiot. And you know what I sang? The Birth of the Blues. Oh, yeah, perfect number for Les Mis. <laughs> Hence, I didn't get that particular production. But I'd still think... I can just imagine their faces mm. as I came out onto stage and, and launched into The Birth of the Blues. <laughs> Uh, go back to the very beginning of your career and your equity card. T- tell us how you got oh, your equity card. God, so little birdies told you that story, yes, haven't I, they? Yeah, very good research. Oh my God! Wow. Because of course, a, a performer needs to be a member of. Oh, and certainly in those days, uh, to be a member of. Well, equity, equity was sort of a lot stronger in those days, I mm. think. Mm. Um, but but you can't get an equity card unless you've. If, professionally yes that's it right a catch it's, 22. it's a catch-22 it's quite a bizarre situation but um very long story short i was working in another one of my careers as a layout and copy artist for hammer hardware i made i was the guy that made kettles and hammers look sexy you know it's a great job <laughs> and don't ask me how i got into that that's it's another life but uh anyway i think i was 19 at the time, and uh, I heard about these auditions for The Sound of Music, 1980 it was, and it was starring Julie Anthony. 
and uh, I hadn't done any professional theatre or anything like that and and I think I'd heard about the auditions through a, a friend in amateur theatre and so I turned up to uh, it was um the Her Majesty's Theatre in Melbourne, that's where it was, Her Majesty's Theatre in Melbourne. And I just turned up to the stage door and I walked in and I remember they said to me, are you a member of Equity? And I just said, yes. And I didn't even know what Equity was. Mm. And so I went on stage and had a whole series of auditions. I still remember I sang On the Street Where You Live and uh, I tell this story in, in the show as well. But anyway, much to my amazement, um, I was offered understudy to Rolf and male ensemble. and But I wasn't a member of Equity. And I remember I went along to Equity in Melbourne and I said, I've just... Hi, my name is Dale Burridge and I've just got into The Sound of Music and I just need to join Equity, you know. And they were like, well, no. No, you can't... There's, there's professionals that... You know, uh, equity members that uh, you know you can't. You're not a member of equity, so you shouldn't have auditioned. And I said, "But what? You know, I've been offered, I've been offered this understudy to Rolf and male ensemble. You know, and I, I you can't stop me from doing it." And I remember, I was desperate, and my poor parents were, you know, not knowing what to do. And so I rang a cousin of mine who worked in the industry, who lived in Adelaide, and he said, oh, you know, just come over to Adelaide and give my address and you'll be able to join over here. So I flew over to Adelaide and joined Equity and they didn't ask me. And I could just join for whatever reason, I suppose. I don't know. Different branch. Yeah. And I walked in, joined Equity, gave a false address. Sorry. And joined, and that's how I got in. And all those years later, John Robertson, who's the, um, you know, pr- producer, all, all the musicals came out of the Adelaide Festival Trust in those days. Um, he said to me, "You did what?" <laughs> <laughs> well, thank God for that clerk in Adelaide. Who? Yes, I won't say who it was money. in uh, um, in Sydney, but I often think of that and think, "Wow, it still was a very confusing thing." Why? I just suppose they made up their mind that I shouldn't be auditioning. Anyway, I was very naive, very green. I had no idea. I had a lot of confidence. And obviously it played out well. The rest is history. The rest is history. Well, Dale Burridge, thank you so much for for the stories that you shared today. There's a lot more, I'm sure, in At the Crossroads. Yeah. uh, Which you're playing at, um, at the Hayes Theatre in April. Yes, so... I did my Melbourne launch of the show at Chapel of Chapel uh, in early December last year. Uh, and I wanted to launch the show, have a proper Sydney launch here. And the Hayes Theatre is a wonderful, intimate theatre. It's perfect for this sort of piece. And, of course, you know, the Hayes has a, an incredible um, association with uh, not only, you know, musicals that are rarely done, but also just supporting you know, wonderful pieces like mine. Uh, so that was my first choice, and luckily they said yes. Um, so I'm very happy to be launching the show there on the, I think, the opening night. Well, I know the opening night is the 7th of April. 
and which is a Thursday, and then we have Friday, Saturday, and then a Sunday matinee. And bookings uh, through the haze. Through the haze, yes. Yeah. Well, it'll be nice to have you back where you belong. Thank you. I hope you can see the show. You yeah, absolutely. I'm coming on Thursday. Woohoo! Yeah, so I look forward to it. Thanks, Dale. Pleasure. After an absence of more than 20 years, one of our true leading men and the original Raoul in the 1990 Australian premiere production of The Phantom of the Opera, Dale Burridge returns to the stage with a funny, moving, heartfelt exploration of the highs and lows of a life spent on and off the boards. Co-written by Dale and Martin Cruz, it is directed by Martin Cruz with musical direction from Bev Kennedy and musical arrangements by Lindsay Partridge. Showcasing Dale's powerhouse vocal talent, it is backed by grand piano and double bass, featuring songs from many of the world's best-loved musicals. The Phantom of the Opera, The Sound of Music, Les Miserables, Anything Goes, Oklahoma, Dr. Doolittle, Scrooge, Chess, The Roar of the Grease Paint and the Smell of the Crowd, Man of La Mancha, and many more. At the Crossroads was launched in Melbourne in December 2021 to rave reviews, marking Burridge's triumphant return to the stage. At the Crossroads will be touring Australia and internationally throughout 2022 and 2023. Performances at the Hayes Theatre are from the 7th of April and continue on Friday the 8th, Saturday the 9th and Sunday the 10th. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.